Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with another episode of The Yacking Show. This is the show where we aim to bring you actionable tips and advice from business experts in a greater range than you will find practically anywhere else in one place on the internet. We do that by bringing you very interesting and special guests. Today is no exception, but first, let's introduce co-host Kathleen Beauvais from Waterloo, Ontario. Hi, Kathleen. How are you today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you. And thank you also very much for joining us today. We have the great privilege of welcoming Noah Healy to the show today. Hello, Noah. How are you? Hello, Kathleen. Peter, I'm doing great. Excellent. Good. Now, Noah is the founder of Cordisk. This is a company that is involved in IT consulting, strategic planning, and information management. And today he'll be talking to us Uh, about strategic planning for the uncertain times that we are finding ourselves in. But first, um, Noah, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to start your own consulting business? Uh, Well, I'm a recreational mathematician, actually. And so uh, a while back now, uh, I had finished a job with the company I was working for and wanted to take some time to think about some of the issues that are evolving from the the ubiquitous computer access in the world mm-hmm. uh, and actually dive into some of these algorithms and understand how they work and <clears throat> see if there was any new things that I could personally discover. Uh, I found a, a little niche in game theory that hadn't really been exploited yet. And when I applied that to the concept of commodity marketplaces, which is sort of the underlying basis of general financial markets, um, I discovered that actually some of the base assumptions that go into how markets function have actually been falsified by the computer technology that Mm -hmm. we've had for, well, the better part of a century at this point. Uh, And so I was able to develop a system that is really vastly superior uh, at the algorithmic level. And so that effectively became my purpose in life to figure out how to explain this to people who haven't decided to study every single aspect of mathematics they could get their hands on for decades. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you've done a lot of work and you just alluded to it now on identifying the the faults in the current economic and financial systems, particularly with regard to commodity markets. So for our audience, what are some of the specific things you've discovered? The primary issue is simply that the marketplace worked by being the smartest thing in the room. So Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, Financial system attracts ambitious, hardworking, intelligent people and effectively throws them into a system to compete with one another to create an overarching system that's more ambitious, smarter, and harder working than any one human being ever could be. Um, Unfortunately, computers uh, can be radically more you know, do radically more work than we could mm-hmm. ever imagine and can process radically greater amounts of data. Uh, and also because ambition, you can just tell the computer to keep rolling again, doesn't need to sleep, doesn't need to eat and so on. And so what's occurred is that the market can't outcompute the players in the market anymore mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. everyone's com- computational level 
is just at however much you know hardware you buy essentially right so um you know imagine if say arm wrestling or tug of war kept being engaged in with the addition of engines so you know instead of wasting your time on people you would just hook up like you know ford hemis and stuff like that well the ropes would start getting pulled to shreds and that's more or less where we've been for decades now right right so let me try and understand this a little bit better if i was to suggest that prior to the to the start of the 20th century you you were talking about computers for 100 years so let's go back to the 1800s the market represented an exchange of value whether that was labor or gold or corn or clothing correct and correct. and that it, the value of a commodity was recognized and as the commodity became short the value was and the price went up and as it was plentiful the price went down and it was not as easy to manipulate that unless one had huge warehouses to store thousands of acres of worth of corn for example but the computers changed that have my understanding this correctly Yes. Yeah. So I would say not so much a hundred, the better part of a hundred, I'd say 50 ish years ago is about okay. where things, things start going off the rails with computers coming into, into play. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were events of people being rich and ruthless enough to manipulate entire marketplaces. Yeah. Um, I was just going to bring that up. How does this, yeah, because, you know. Every- but they were few and far between. Right. And several of those people wound up in the dock and basically having to give it all back. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that's essentially just normal. We have markets that appear to be functioning in much the same way as markets have for centuries. But when they're pressed, suddenly everyone on the other side vanishes because everyone on the other side wasn't a person. Mm -hmm. They were computer algorithms that were just waiting to pull the rug out, you know, the second somebody actually needed them. They were just creating an illusion. So the cost of producing an illusion in the old system when everybody was a person was quite high because any person that figured out what you were doing could sort of break your cover and make themselves a lot of money by, by letting the air out of your scheme. Mm -hmm. But now you can, you can just buy a, you know, a bank of machines that can pull off any illusion you care to think of. And while it is still expensive, there are thousands literally of firms that exist to effectively lie to the marketplace for their own benefit and and you know a system is garbage in garbage out as we lower the quality of the signals coming in Mm -hmm. the system becomes less stable that's just how it works right got you you have a patent pending system called cdm or coordinated discovery market can you explain in layman's terms uh what this is about uh, sure. So my insight is that every deal in the marketplace not only has the goods and the cash, but also the information about that deal. And so instead of having a solid market in goods and a solid market in cash and sort of this ephemeral market in information, which is where we are right now, mm-hmm. I join a solid market in information to those other two systems. And so we have to change how 
the, the trading occurs to be able to support a solid information market. Mm -hmm. But this marketplace has three roles. There's a buyer role for people who want to exchange cash for whatever is on offer. There's a seller role who wants to exchange whatever's on offer for cash. And there's a sort of forecasting negotiation role that mm -hmm. people who want to do either of those things or people who just have relevant opinions that they're proud of can share with the general system to allow a sequence of pre-negotiated price levels that can then be utilized without the existing sort of market instability. So mm -hmm. these are prices that have already been negotiated by both sides. In some cases, you know, as, as the system goes on, each price can be renegotiated day by day for weeks, months, years. You know, you can keep the calendar out as far as you want. Um, so these prices become extremely stable, um, very dependably projected into the future. And you get a situation where everybody trades at the same price everybody else trades at. Everybody gets to see where prices are heading for everybody at all times. And people who have information that's useful to the marketplace can provide it to the entire marketplace simultaneously and get okay. paid for how much value that they're offering across the entire marketplace mm -hmm. through time. Right, right, right. So from what you're saying, if, if this system was adopted, I, I could see huge benefits for businesses in general, but particularly small and medium-sized businesses who very often, because of the flaws in the current system, are discriminated against by the big players, right? Absolutely. One of the standard examples I use uh, is, is, you know, wheat farms, um, Yep. Uh, the the margin for an American wheat farm on average is something like 14%. Uh, the, the overhead, the market overhead on average for, for agricultural items from talking to farmers, talking to traders is probably somewhere on the order of five or 6%. Um, so dropping that from say, 6% to 1% would increase that wheat farm margin from 14 to 19%. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, if you're in a wheat farm, you know, that's doing half a million uh, so that you've got sort of a family income of $70,000, each one of those points would be worth another $5,000 mm -hmm. a year in income. And so you'd go from say 70 to 20, $95,000 as the, as the profits for that farm, which would be obviously a life-changing uh, situation. I've just recently started talking to beef ranchers over the last 60 years, the, the share of the, of the table dollar, if you will, that mm -hmm. the beef industry gets has gone from uh, 61 cents on the dollar to about 40 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So that means potentially there's, um, a 50% of their revenue loss through the chain right now that a, a working market could, could alter their lifestyles, frankly. If, if you're talking about sure. being able to increase your, your business profitability by 50% wow. on a permanent basis, yeah. then yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty changing. Mm. 
and sorry, just just to continuing the, that chain of thought, mm -hmm. the ramifications of that are, are huge because my understanding is because of the tight margins, both for crop and beef farmers, um, we've seen a huge exodus of rural families to the city and more and more family farms get swallowed up by corporate farming enterprises. So there's a huge social cost to this as well. So if you can reverse that um, by a fair, a fair, call it a fair market, it's going to have huge social implications. Absolutely. That's one of the, the principal things that makes it so that I can't really do anything other than this is that um, we have shifted towards a, a sort of service model because service is the only thing that we can sort of show kids makes any money. Mm -hmm. uh, but production is the backbone of civilization. Mm -hmm. And so production needs to be profitable for civilization to keep happening. Uh, and, and this would be a strong opportunity to, to shift the table towards production. And if, mm -hmm. if growing things or making things become significantly more profitable, then we would see social priorities change in a very positive way. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Kathleen, back to you, Kathleen. What is the most important factor that small business owners should consider in their strategic planning right now? Uh, basically, the information environment. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're going to be seeing ongoing instability in the institutions that that you interact with because mm -hmm. those institutions were, were created at a time when internet computation and other ideas of the 20th century not only hadn't been conceived of, but if you told anybody that say quantum physics was real, they would, you know, we even think that sounds stupid and crazy. We just happen to know that it's true. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we're in a transition point and uh, to the degree that you can find ways to build new institutional strength across your supply chain through customer base, I think, um, to, to unify interests, it's, it's, there's a lot to be said there. Um, there's, there's a lot of valuable information about your business that exists both in computer hard drives that you're not looking at inside your business and also from outsider interactions with your business that if you can capture and use, then you'll be able to avoid many mistakes that will mm -hmm. kill you if you make them. So mm -hmm. finding ways to incentivize both the systems that you build and the people you interact with to give you a hint when they see things that could be doing better is, uh, is I think the, the best way that we have to go forward. All right. So picking up on that, and we had a very brief chat about this right at the start um, before we started the show, um, very new technology. Let's talk about AI <clears throat> and things like chat GPT that can generate content that's almost as good as stuff generated by humans. Is this going to have a big impact on this information gathering and small businesses surviving in the current, current uh, times? Uh, they're going to crank up the noise level by a degree that that's very hard to, to truly imagine. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about what customer feedback looks like right now, uh, it would be, 
people motivated enough to to send a letter in or mm-hmm. or send an email. Uh, maybe if we're very unfortunate, it's some vengeful soul that decides to create a social media campaign to try to drive you out of business. Uh, but all of those things involve a human being doing something. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one of my first jobs getting out of college was actually building what we refer to in the company as a spam cannon, uh, <laughs> a thing to send out the newsletter to the 50,000 or so people who were on the email list of the, the company I was working for and personalize those letters to each individual. Um, spam's a lot cheaper today than it was back in the day. And with ChatGPT, that spam could be personalized in ways that wouldn't be immediately obvious to sure. PhDs right. in English. Yep. So you could see a scenario where 100% effectively of customer feedback and, and other things like that were completely fake and yep. they could all be generated using deep fake technologies and, you know, I'm not a person types of, of inputs. They could be on camera direct to address, you know, vocal things that would, mm-hmm. Which again could all be generated by one person who you know had a bad French fry and decided to try to drive you out of business. So uh, these sorts of things um, are are one sort of very obvious avenue of attack. Another much less obvious avenue of attack is that uh, the things that make them work is the very large fund of pretty decent content that humans have generated over the last 6,000 yeah. years that's online. Right. But as the content that they produce becomes relatively indistinguishable from the content that we already have, it becomes possible to create very large amounts of new data yep. that might be subtly wrong. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and I remember you know, the debates about, say, Steven Spielberg's predilection for sort of inserting ads into his movies, which is generally, we all just accept that that's a thing that happens in Hollywood. But it would be relatively shocking for us if our web browsers start digesting things for us, and then it becomes practical and indeed important to corrupt the underlying data flow so that uh, ad copy is subtly inserting itself into the texts of say the, the, you know, great books or something like that. So you're reading right. a translation of Dostoevsky and the, the translation your bot that's translating it for you has been corrupted so that certain words or phrases are translated to be ads for things or to, to slant your, political opinions or frankly anything else anybody can imagine Uh, these 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 types of these types of things are now really basically a a living reality and Mm -hmm. and our existing social institutions certainly can't cope with those so um finding finding ways to stabilize your industry or business is going to require taking some time, picking your head up and thinking about some of these deeper issues, what sorts of threats uh, that could exist that, that could be damaging, uh, what sort of opportunities exist, where the moral lines are, 
and and when you see these things, getting out there, creating associations, trying to figure out how to get people to behave in ways that are constructive and helpful because mm-hmm. because we we all need to work on this to get to a future where our technology isn't going to kill us and not right. in mm-hmm. like Skynet Frankenstein sense, but more right. in the if we never figured out that you have to put an exhaust pipe on a car and we just vented the engine into, into the driving compartment sense, like if, if we just use these things wrong, they'll kill us, you know, just because we're using them wrong. Sure. 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 Yeah. Wow. So something that um, you call yourself, let me get this right. You call yourself as an algorithmist with a conscience. So I really uh, like that term. Explain that a little bit more to our audience. Well, the thing that actually got me into computational math in the first place was training in engineering. Uh, and one of the key parts of the engineering training was an ethical component. The idea mm-hmm. that as a professional, you need to master a body of work that is sufficiently complicated that it isn't possible for your employers and other members of your society to master that body of of work. And then because they can't judge the decisions or advice that you're making, you now have a duty to behave in ways that are in their interests and not your interests um, because otherwise you cannot be trusted and society can't take advantage of actually people who master these bodies of work. So um, uh, they were just effectively hiring warm bodies. It was the peak of the dot-com boom. They, they, they would take anybody. Um, I was, you know, I was better at math than, than most entrants, I would imagine. Uh, and I was able to master the basic technical skills fairly rapidly. Uh, but, you know, this was still spinning around in my brain. And I wanted to really learn the fundamentals. And so I was sort of reading the internet. Uh, One of the great things about the internet is not only there's a lot of useful information there, but the people who invented it all put down their notes basically. And so Mm -hmm. computational mathematics is very, very easy to find on the internet, basically all of it. So uh, that that led me down the path to learning about how these things work. And then once you understand how fundamental computation is, computational mathematics is essentially the mathematics of philosophy. Okay. Um, And so while there are certain straightforward applications, like for the last 60-ish years, we've been figuring out how to multiply numbers faster and faster. Um, and and we're, we're now have an algorithm that we think is probably as fast as you can possibly multiply numbers symbolically. Uh, but maybe we're wrong and, and people still work on that problem. Um, outside of some of these base mechanical issues like sorting and searching, uh, once people start using it, their their interests become very important. And mm-hmm. so without that consideration of the system's impact 
and the desires of the people around that system, I think it's it's very easy to create things that are very dangerous mm-hmm. um, or just effectively doomed. Um, there's a concept called Conway's Law, where any system replicates the communication structure of its designers. So mm-hmm. if you have if you're building a car and the people that make the wheels don't talk to the people that make the axles, then your car's wheels and axles won't actually connect to each other and it's not going to work out. Right. Um, one of the problems of this from a computational standpoint is that at a pure technical level, we've learned quite a lot about how algorithms can be put together. And what we've discovered is that the best way to put algorithms together don't necessarily resemble the sort of hierarchical tribal behaviors that corporations actually set up. So corporate software tends to suck so bad is that it's written very poorly Mm -hmm. and it's written very poorly, not because the people that work there are incompetent, but because they work for a corporation and are more or less forced to write corporate structured code as a result of that. Um, which sucks because because we've already done the math. We know uh, mathematically that that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Very good. So now what, what type of clients are you looking for right now? Uh, I'm primarily looking to license this technology to people who can use it. So uh, people like broker dealers or, okay. or uh, exchanges, um, but also a bit more expansive um, uh, industry associations. Um, and I'm actually working with a couple of people who are trying to set up crypto exchanges. So mm-hmm. sort of lone or paired cowboys uh, who, who really want to take things in a very different direction. Um, so those sorts of, those sorts of things uh, are the primary user base for CDM. Um, the other possibilities are, uh, sort of medium to large size companies that would want to figure out how to wrangle their own internal data systems, because once you're big enough, actually having internal markets for project management and, and things like that for mm-hmm. other kinds of data, um, many people have tried market-based project management before, and it's almost universally a disaster. Um, but that's largely because uh, the markets that exist were built out for exchanging actual physical product. Right. And so doing a one-to-one translation, it just isn't a very good fit. Um, my model is very much about finding information consensuses. Uh, uh, and so okay. that kind of system can change the incentives in ways that make it so that sabotaging your own project for personal benefit is no longer the best thing for you to do, uh, which is very typically what happens when what people if... sort of slap in, oh, let's just have the market take care of everything. Right. <laughs> Interesting. <clears throat> no, here's one for you. And um, it's not one of the questions I was going to ask you, but <clears throat> because you've been talking about markets, just before we started the show today, I read an, uh, a news item that said 
for the first time, the gross domestic product of the BRICS group of countries has overtaken that of North America and Western Europe. And I think they've hit 31.6% and USA, Canada, Mexico and Western Europe are 30.2%. Do you think that trend is going to continue or do you think we will, I say we collectively, North America, Europe, get back into um, uh, the leadership of the free world, or do you think we've seen our day? I think there's a lot of opportunity if we manage to bridge this this technology gap. Mm-hmm. So I I think that we are entering the fourth age of mankind. I think computers are a bigger deal than steam engines. I think steam engines were a bigger deal than plows. Um, I think that we're going to need new governmental, cultural financial and even religious structures to be able to cope with what these kinds of things mean. Um, And I don't see anyone presently in a position to have any of those things that have any kind of a future. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, with the BRICS, one strong cautionary note I would point out is that the C is China Mm -hmm. uh, and China's internal data about how their economy is doing is also what they use for promotion within the communist party, which is also the only kind of promotion that matters in the country. Mm -hmm. So the ghost city phenomenon is in part because of the enormous growth rate that they had where they're like, well, you know, build it and they will come. Mm -hmm. But the primary reason is that some young ambitious guy on the make would be handed a territory and told, however much more this is worth, you know, we'll compare you with the other young guys we're sending out to the middle of nowhere. And whoever can create the most value wins. Well, a rice paddy or a 70 story high rise, the 70 story high rise must be worth more, right? Sure, sure. Not if people need to eat rice and nobody wants to live in the building, but that doesn't, that's not the way they're doing the accounting. So Mm -hmm. they're doing uh, basically mark to model accounting across their entire country and have been for, for decades. Mm -hmm. Now they've so far been able to lean on the markets to provide sort of external modifications to that, but we're watching the markets disintegrate in real time. Yeah. So that lean isn't going to last. And, and they're still doing the sort of mark to fantasy system. So it's very hard to tell how big their economy actually is, sure. how real it actually is. And that, frankly, is also true of Western Europe, us, the United States. Um, you know, we just recently had a banking kerfuffle uh, that was based in large part on a mark to fantasy ruling uh, that allowed mm-hmm. them to not have to restate the value of the bonds they were using for for reserves under the condition that the United States government is rug pulling the bonds because it needs to deal with the inflation crisis. Right. Um, right. Interesting times. Interesting. Time. We we're running short of time, but. <clears throat> There's something I need to ask you, because you're, you've had a lot of experience with a huge range of different people. So it, if you look at people that are more successful than the average, and I don't just mean creating wealth, I mean having a balanced life and a happy life, if we can define that. 
Is there a, a, a one single characteristic or, or mindset or value that sets those people apart from those that remain average, or is it more complicated? Uh, well, doing the work is effort is is an amazing thing. I you know I wish I was harder working, um, but uh, but the one I like is that the common trait shared by the most successful subgroup of human beings who've ever lived is having written a prairie language. Uh, what? Huh. There's, there's only a few thousand of them. And of course they're all currently alive, um, which, which gives them a huge leg up over most human beings who've ever lived. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they're not all currently alive, but almost all of them are. And, uh, and there is actually a very deep learning process that you have to undergo in order to create a novel language. So for, for young or old folks out in the audience that would like to understand more about computers, the internet, and, and where the future might be lying, um, yeah, try that as a research project for yourself. See if you can write a programming language. Right. Wow. That's a good one. That's a very good one. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and uh, while I've got the floor, a very quick message to our audience. You know, you've seen another one of our amazing, interesting guests today and listen to him. Uh, if you don't want to miss out on our next lot of very interesting guests, hop onto our website, theyackingshow.com. Find the form, sign up for our weekly newsletter. We only send you one email a week and we'll tell you about the guests that we've got coming along. So back to Kathleen. So Noah, tell us how um, our audience members can contact you. Uh, well, the easiest, most direct way to get in touch with me is my email address, noahphealy at yahoo.com. Uh, but there is a website, uh, Cordisc, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C, uh, that has a lot of information about CDM at it. Uh, and of course, you could also find me on LinkedIn. I'm just Noah Healy there. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for uh, coming on our show today, Noah. It was, a, it was a great honor and a great privilege for us. And thank you all so very much for tuning in. And if anyone is interested in being a guest on our show, please visit us at theyackingshow.com. All you need to do is click on the contacts tab where you will find a short application form. We would love to hear from you. And if there's any topics that interest you, we would love to hear about it. So please let us know in the comment in the comments. Until next time, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.